0: Volume One, Section Nine, of the Life of Charlotte Bronte. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie von Wilhelm. The Life of Charlotte Bronte by Elizabeth Clagden Gaskell, Volume One, Section Nine chapter seven miss bronte left Rohead in eighteen thirty two having won the affectionate regard both of her teacher and her schoolfellows and having formed there the two fast friendships which lasted her whole life long the one with mary who has not kept her letters the other with e who has kindly entrusted me with a large portion of Miss Bronte's correspondence with her. This she has been induced to do, by her knowledge, of the urgent desire on the part of Mr. Bronte, that the life of his daughter should be written, and in compliance with a request from her husband, that I should be permitted to have the use of these letters, without which such a task could be but very imperfectly executed." in order to shield this rent however from any blame or misconstruction it is only right to state that before granting me this privilege she threw out most carefully and completely effaced the names of the persons and places which occurred in them and also that such information as i have obtained from her bears reference solely to miss bronte and her sisters and not to any other individuals whom i may find it necessary to allude to in connection with them in looking over the earlier portion of this correspondence i am struck afresh by the absence of hope which formed such a strong characteristic in charlotte at an age when girls in general look forward to an eternal duration of such feelings as they or their friends entertain and can therefore see no hindrance to the fulfilment of any engagements dependent on the future state of the affections, she is surprised that E keeps a promise to write. In after-life I was painfully impressed with the fact that Miss Bronte never dared to allow herself to look forward with hope, that she had no confidence in the future, And I thought, when I heard of the sorrowful years she had passed through, that it had been this, this pressure of grief which had crushed all buoyancy of expectation out of her. But it appears from the letters that it must have been, so to speak, constitutional, or perhaps the deep pang of losing her two elder sisters combined with the permanent state of bodily weakness in producing her hopelessness. If her trust in God had been less strong, she would have given way to unbounded anxiety at many a period of her life. As it was, we shall see, she made a great and successful effort to leave her times in His hands. After her return home, she employed herself in teaching her sisters, over whom she had had superior advantages. She writes thus, July 21st, 1832, of her course of life at the Parsonage. An account of one day is an account of all. In the morning, from nine o'clock till half-past twelve, I instruct my sisters, and draw, then we walk till dinner-time. After dinner, I sew till tea-time, and after tea I either write, read, or do a little fancy work or draw as i please thus in one delightful though somewhat monotonous course my life is past i have been only out twice to tea since i came home we are expecting company this afternoon and on tuesday next we shall have all the female teachers of the sunday school to tea i may here introduce a quotation from a letter which I have received from Mary, since the publication of the previous editions of this memoir. Soon after leaving school, she admitted reading something of cupboards. She did not like him, she said, but all was fish that came to her net. At this time she wrote to me that reading and drawing were the only amusements she had, and that her supply of books was very small in proportion to her wants. She never spoke of her aunt. When I saw Miss Brenwell, she was a very precise person, and looked very odd, because the dress etc. so utterly out of fashion. She corrected one of us once for using the word spit or spitting. She made a great favourite of Brenwell. She made her niece so, with purpose or without, and as far as possible discouraged any other culture. She used to keep the girls sewing charity clothing, and maintained to me that it was not for the good of the recipients, but of the sewers. It was proper for them to do it, she said. Charlotte never was in wild excitement, that I know of. When in health, she used to talk better, and indeed when in low spirits, never spoke at all. She needed her best spirits to say what was in her heart for at other times she had not courage she never gave decided opinions at such times charlotte said she could get on with anyone who had a bump at the top of their heads meaning conscientiousness i found that i seldom differed from her except that she was far too tolerant of stupid people if they had a grain of kindness in them it was about this time that Mr. Bronte provided his children with a teacher in drawing, who turned out to be a man of considerable talent, but very little principle. Although they never attained to anything like proficiency, they took great interest in inquiring this art, evidently, from an instinctive desire to express their powerful imaginations in visible forms. Charlotte told me that at this period of her life, drawing and walking out with the sisters, formed the two great pleasures and relaxations of her day. The three girls used to walk upwards, toward the purple-black moors, the sweeping surface of which was broken by here and there a stone quarry, and if they had strength and time to go far enough, they reached a waterfall, where the back fell over some rocks into the bottom. They seldom went downwards through the village. They were shy of meeting even familiar faces, and were scrupulous about entering the house of the very poorest uninvited. They were steady teachers at the Sunday school, a habit which Charlotte kept up very faithfully, even after she was left alone. But they never faced their kind voluntary, and always preferred the solitude and freedom of the Moors in the september of this year charlotte went to pay her first visit to her friend to e it took her into the neighbourhood of roe head and brought her into pleasant contact with many of her old school fellows after this visit she and her friend seemed to have agreed to correspond in french for the sake of improvement in the language but this improvement could not be great, when it could only amount to a greater familiarity with dictionary words, and when there was no one to explain to them, that a verbal translation of English idioms hardly constituted French composition. But the effort was laudable, and of itself shows how willing they both were to carry on the education which they had begun under Miss W. I will give an extract which, whatever may be thought of the language, is graphic enough and presents us with a happy little family picture the elder sister returning home to the two younger after a fortnight's absence j'arrivai à awors en parfaite sauveté sans le moindre accident au malheur mes petites sœurs couraient hors de la maison pour me rencontrer aussitôt que la voiture se fit voir et elle m'embrassait avec autant d'empressement et de plaisir comme si j'avais été absente pour plus d'un. Mon papa, ma tante et le monsieur dont mon frère avait parlé furent tous assemblés dans le salon. Et en peu de temps je m'y rendis aussi. C'est souvent l'ordre du ciel que quand on a perdu un plaisir, il y a une autre prêt à prendre sa place. Ainsi je venois de partir de très chers amis. Mais tout à l'heure, je rêvais à des parents aussi chers et bons dans le moment. Même que vous me perdiez, ose-je croire que mon départ vous était un chagrin? Vous attendiez l'arrivée de votre frère et de votre sœur. J'ai donné à mes sœurs les pommes que vous leur envoyez avec tant de bonté. Elles disent qu'elles sont sûres que Mademoiselle A e est très aimable et bonne. L'une et l'autre sont extrêmement impatientes de vous voir. J'espère qu'en peu de moi elles auront ce plaisir. But it was some time yet before the friends could meet, and meanwhile they agreed to correspond once a month. There were no events to chronicle in the house letters. Quiet days, occupied in reading, and feminine occupations in the house, did not present much to write about, and Charlotte was naturally driven to criticise books. Of these there were many in different plights, and, according to their plight, kept in different places. The well-bound were ranged in the sanctuary of Mr. Bronte's study, but the purchase of books was a necessary luxury to him. But as it was often a choice between binding an old one or buying a new one, the familiar volume which had been hungrily read by all the members of the family was sometimes in such a condition that a bedroom shelf was considered its fitting place. Up and down the house were to be found many standard works of a solid kind. Sir Walter Scott's writings, Wordsworth's, and Southie's poems were among the lighter literature, while, as having a character of their own, earnest, wild, and occasionally fanatical, may be named some of the books which came from the Branwell side of the family from the Cornish followers of the saintly John Wesley, and which are touched on in the account of the works to which Carolyn Hellstone had access in Shirley. Some venerable ladies' magazines, that had once performed a voyage with Sirona and undergone a storm, possibly part of the relics of Mrs. Bronte's possessions, contained in the shipwrecked on the coast of Cornwall, and whose pages were stained with salt water, some mad Methodist magazines, full of miracles and apparitions, and preternatural warnings, ominous dreams, and frenzied fanaticisms, and the equally mad letters of Mrs. Elizabeth Rowe from the dead to the living. Mr. Bronte encouraged the taste for reading in his girls, and though Miss Branwell kept it in due bounds by the variety of household occupations, in which she expected them not merely to take a part, but to become proficients, thereby occupying regularly a good portion of every day, they were allowed to get books from the circulating library at Cayley, and many a happy walk up those long four miles must they have had, burdened with some new book into which they peeped, as they hurried home. Not that the books were what would generally be called new, in the beginning of 1833. The two friends seem almost simultaneously to have fallen upon Kenilworth, and Charlotte writes as follows about it. "'I am glad you like Kenilworth. It is certainly more resembling a romance than a novel, in my opinion.' one of the most interesting works that ever emanated from the great Sir Walter's pen. Varney is certainly the personification of consummate villainy, and in the delineation of his dark and profoundly artful mind, Scott exhibits a wonderful knowledge of human nature, as well as a surprising skill in embodying his perceptions, so as to enable others to become participators in that knowledge commonplace as this extract may seem it is noteworthy on two or three accounts in the first place instead of discussing the plot or story she analyzes the character of varney and next she knowing nothing of the world both from her youth and her isolated position has yet been so accustomed to hear human nature distrusted as to receive the notion of intense and artful villainy without surprise what was formal and set in her way of writing to e diminished as their personal acquaintance increased and as each came to know the home of the other so that small details concerning people and places had their interest and their significance in the summer of eighteen thirty three she wrote to invite her friend to come and pay her a visit. "'Aunt thought it would be better,' she says, "'to defer it until about the middle of summer, "'as the winter and even the spring seasons "'are remarkably cold and bleak among our mountains.'" The first impression made on the visitor by the sisters of a school-friend was that Emily was a tall, long-armed girl, more fully grown than her elder sister, extremely reserved in manner. I distinguish reserve from shyness, because I imagine shyness would please if it knew how, whereas reserve is indifferent whether it pleases or not. Anne, like her elder sister, was shy. Emily was reserved— Branwell was rather a handsome boy with tawny hair, to use Miss Bronte's phrase for a more obnoxious colour. All were very clever, original, and utterly different to any people or family E. had ever seen before. But on the whole, it was a happy visit to all parties. Charlotte says in writing to E. just after her return home, "'Were I to tell you of the impression you have made on every one here,' you would accuse me of flattery. Papa and aunt are continually adducing you as an example for me to shape my actions and behaviour by. Emily and Anne say they never saw any one they liked so well as you, and Tabby, whom you have absolutely fascinated, talked a great deal more nonsense about your ladyship than I care to repeat. It is now so dark— that, notwithstanding the singular property of seeing in the night-time, which the young ladies at Rowhead used to attribute to me, I can scribble no longer. To a visitor at the parsonage, it was a great thing to have Tabby's good word. She had a Yorkshire keenness of perception into character, and it was not everybody she liked. How was— Is built with an utter disregard of all sanitary conditions. The great old churchyard lies above all the houses, and it is terrible to think how the very water springs of the pumps below must be poisoned. But this winter of eighteen thirty three thirty four was particularly wet and rainy, and there were an unusual number of deaths in the village a dreary season it was to the family in the parsonage, their usual walks obstructed by the spongy state of the moors, the passing and funeral bells so frequently tolling, and filling the heavy air with their mournful sound, and when they were still, the chip-chip of the mason, as he cut the gravestones in a shed close by. In many, living, as it were, in a churchyard, and with all the sights and sounds, Connected with the last offices to the dead things of everyday occurrence, the very familiarity would have bred indifference. But it was otherwise with Charlotte Bronte. One of her friends says, I have seen her turn pale and feel faint when in Hartshead Church someone accidentally remarked that we were walking over graves. Charlotte was certainly afraid of death not only of dead bodies or dying people. She dreaded it, as something horrible. She thought we did not know how long the moment of disillusion might really be, or how terrible. This was just such a terror as only hypochondriacs can provide for themselves. She told me long ago that a misfortune was often preceded by the dream frequently repeated which he gives to Jane Eyre, of carrying a little wailing child, and being unable to still it. She described herself as having the most painful sense of pity for the little thing, lying inert, as sick children do, while she walked about in some gloomy place with it, such as the ale of Howard's church. The misfortunes she mentioned were not always to herself. She thought such a sensitiveness to omens was like the cholera present to susceptible people, some feeling more, some less. About the beginning of 1834, E. went to London for the first time. The idea of a friend's visit seemed to have stirred Charlotte strangely. She appears to have formed her notions of its probable consequences from some of the papers in the British essayists, the Rambler, the Mirror, or the Lounger, which may have been among the English classics on the parsonage bookshelves, for she evidently imagines that an entire change of character for the worse is the usual effect of a visit to the great metropolis, and is delighted to find that E is E still. And as her faith in her friend's stability is restored, her own imagination is deeply moved— by the idea of what great wonders are to be seen in that vast and famous city. Haworth, February twentieth, 1834 Your letter gave me real and heartfelt pleasure, mingled with no small share of astonishment. Mary had previously informed me of your departure for London, and I had not ventured to calculate on any communication from you while surrounded— by the splendours and novelties of that great city, which has been called the mercantile metropolis of Europe. Judging from human nature, I thought that a little country girl for the first time in a situation so well calculated, to excite curiosity and to distract attention, would lose all remembrance, for a time at least, of distant and familiar objects and give herself up entirely to the fascination of those scenes which were then presented to her view. Your kind, interesting, and most welcome epistle showed me, however, that I had been both mistaken and uncharitable in these suppositions. I was greatly amused at the tone of nonchalance which you assumed, while treating of London and its wonders. Did you not feel awed while gazing at St. Paul's and Westminster Abbey? Had you no feeling of intense and ardent interest, when in St. James's you saw the palace where so many of England's kings have held their cords, and beheld the representations of their persons on the walls? You should not be too much afraid of appearing country-bred, The magnificence of London has drawn exclamations of astonishment from travelled men experienced in the world its wonders and beauties. Have you yet seen anything of the great personages whom the sitting of Parliament now detains in London? The Duke of Wellington? Sir Robert Peel? Earl Grey? Mrs. Stanley? Mr. O'Connell? If I were you, I would not be too anxious to spend my time in reading whilst in town, Make use of your own eyes for the purposes of observation now, and, for a time at least, lay aside the spectacles with which authors would furnish us. In a postscript she adds, Will you be kind enough to inform me of the number of performers in the King's military band? And in something of the same strain she writes on, June 19th, My own dear E., I may rightfully and truly call you so now. You have returned, or are returning from London, from the great city which is to me as apocryphal as Babylon, or Nineveh, or ancient Rome. You are withdrawing from the world, as it is called, and bringing with you, if your letters enable me to form a correct judgment, a heart as unsophisticated, as natural, as true, as that you carried there. I am slow, very slow, to believe the protestations of another. I know my own sentiments. I can read my own mind. But the minds of the rest of men and womankind are to me sealed volumes, hieroglyphical scrolls, which I cannot easily either unseal or decipher. Yet time, careful study, long acquaintance, overcome most difficulties, and in your case, I think they have succeeded well in bringing to light, and construing that hidden language, whose turnings, whinings, inconsistencies, and obscurities so frequently baffle the researches of the honest observer of human nature. I am truly grateful for your mindfulness of so obscure a person as myself, and I hope the pleasure is not altogether selfish. I trust it is partly derived from the consciousness that my friend's character is of a higher, a more steadfast order than I was once perfectly aware of. Few girls would have done as you have done, would have beheld the glare and glitter, and dazzling display of London, with dispositions so unchanged, hearts so uncontaminated." I see no affectation in your letters, no trifling, no frivolous contempt of plain and weak admiration of showy persons and things. In these days of cheap railway trips, we may smile at the idea of a short visit to London having any great effect upon the character, whatever it may have upon the intellect. But her London, her great apocryphal city, was the town of a century before to which giddy daughters dragged unwilling papas, or went with injudicious friends to the detriment of all their better qualities, and sometimes to the ruin of their fortunes, it was the vanity fair of the pilgrim's progress to her. But see the just and admirable sense with which she can treat a subject of which is able to overlook all the bearings. How was July 4, 1834? In your last you request me to tell you of your faults. Now, really, how can you be so foolish? I won't tell you of your faults, because I don't know them. What a creature would that be, who, after receiving an affectionate and kind letter from a beloved friend, should sit down and write a catalogue of defects by way of answer? Imagine me doing so, and then consider what epithets you would bestow on me conceited, dogmatical, hypocritical little humbug, I should think, would be the mildest. Why, child, I've neither time nor inclination to reflect on your faults, when you are so far from me, and when, besides, kind letters and presents and so forth, are continually bringing forth your goodness in the most prominent light. Then, too, there are judicious relations always round you, who can much better discharge that unpleasant office. I have no doubt their advice is completely at your service. Why, then, should I intrude mine? If you will not hear them, it will be vain, though one should rise from the dead to instruct you. Let us have no more nonsense, if you love me. Mr. Blank is going to be married, is he?' Well, his wife-elect appeared to me to be a clever and amiable lady as far as I could judge from the little I saw of her and from your account. Now to that flattering sentence must I tack on a list of her faults? You say it is in contemplation for you to leave blank. I am sorry for it. Blank is a pleasant spot, one of the old family halls of England, surrounded by lawn and woodland. Speaking of past times, and suggesting, to me at least, happy feelings. I'm thought you'd grown less, did she? I'm not grown a bit, but as short and dumpy as ever. You ask me to recommend to you some books for your perusal. I will do so in as few words as I can. If you like poetry, let it be first rate. Milton, Shakespeare, Thompson, goldsmiths, Pope, if you will, though I don't admire him. "'Scott, Byron, Campbell, Wordsworth, and Sousey. "'Now, don't be startled at the names of Shakespeare and Byron. "'Both these were great men, and their works are like themselves. "'You will know how to choose the good, and to avoid the evil. "'The finest passages are always the purest. "'The bad are invariably revolting. "'You will never wish to read them over twice. Omit the comedies of Shakespeare and the Don Juan, perhaps the Cain of Byron, though so the latter is a magnificent poem, and read the rest fearlessly. That must indeed be a depraved mind which can gather evil from Henry the eighth, from Richard the third, from Macbeth and Hamlet and Julius Caesar. Scott's sweet, wild romantic poetry can do you no harm, nor can Wordsworth's, nor Campbell's, nor Southey's the greatest part at least of his, some is certainly objectionable. For history, read Hume, Rollin, and the universal history, if you can. I never did. For fiction, read Scott alone, all novels after his are worthless. For biography, read Johnson's Life of the Poets, Boswell's Life of Johnson, Southey's Life of Nelson, Lockhart's Life of Burns, moore's life of sheridan moore's life of byron wolf's remains for natural history read bewick and audubon and goldsmith and white's history of selborne for divinity your brother will advise you there i can only say adhere to standard authors and avoid novelty from this list we see that she must have had good range of books from which to choose her own reading It is evident that the womanly consciences of these two correspondents were anxiously alive to many questions discussed among the stricter religionists. The morality of Shakespeare needed the confirmation of Charlotte's opinion to the sensitive E, and a little later she inquired whether dancing was objectionable, when indulged in, for an hour or two, in parties of boys and girls. Charlotte replies,— I should hesitate to express a difference of opinion from Mr. Blank, or from your excellent sister, but really, the matter seems to me to stand thus. It is allowed on all hands that the sin of dancing consists not in the mere action of shaking the shanks, as the Scotch say, but in the consequences that usually attend it, namely frivolity and waste of time. When it is used only, as in the case you state the exercise and amusement of an hour, among young people, who surely may, without any breach of God's commandments, be allowed to let a light-heartedness, these consequences cannot follow. Ergo, according to my manner of arguing, the amusement is at such times perfectly innocent. Although the distance between Haworth and B was but seventeen miles, it was difficult to go straight from the one to the other, without hiring a gig or vehicle of some kind for the journey; hence, a visit from Charlotte required a good deal of free arrangement. The Howes' gig was not always to be had, and Mr. Bronte was often unwilling to fall into any arrangement for meeting at Bradford or other places, which would occasion trouble to others the whole family had an ample share of that sensitive pride, which led them to dread incurring obligations, and to fear outstaying their welcome when on any visit. I am not sure whether Mr. Bronte did not consider distrust of others as a part of that knowledge of human nature, on which he piqued himself. His precepts to this effect, combined with Charlotte's lack of hope, Made her always fearful of loving too much, of varying the objects of her affection, and thus she was often trying to restrain her warm feelings, and was ever chary of that presence so invariably welcome to her true friends. According to this mode of acting, when she was invited for a month, she stayed but a fortnight amidst E.'s family, to whom every visit only endeared her the more, and by whom she was received with that kind of quiet gladness with which they would have greeted a sister. She still kept up her childish interest in politics. In March 1835 she writes, What do you think of the course politics are taking? I make this inquiry because I now think you take a wholesome interest in the matter. Formerly you did not care greatly about it. B, you see, is triumphant. Wretched "'I am a hearty hater, and if there is any one I thoroughly abhor, it is that man. "'But the opposition is divided, Red Hots and lukewarms and the Duke, par excellence, "'the Duke, and Sir Robert Field, show no signs of insecurity, though they have been "'twice beat, so courage, mon ami,' as the old chevaliers used to say before they joined "'battle.' In the middle of the summer of 1835, a great family plan was mooted at the parsonage. The question was, to what trade or profession should Branwell be brought up? He was now nearly eighteen. It was time to decide. He was very clever, no doubt, perhaps to begin with, the greatest genius in this rare family. The sisters hardly recognized their own, or each other's powers, But they knew his. The father, ignorant of many failings in moral conduct, did proud homage to the great gifts of his son, for Branwell's talents were readily and willingly brought out for the entertainment of others. Popular admiration was sweet to him, and this led to his presence being sought at Arville's and all the great village gatherings, for the Yorkshire men have a keen relish for intellect and it likewise procured him the undesirable distinction of having his company recommended by the landlord of the Black Bull to any chance traveller who might happen to feel solitary or dull over his liquor. "'Do you want someone to help you with your bottle, sir? If you do, I'll send up for Patrick.' So the villagers called him till the day of his death, though in his own family he was always Branwell.' and while the messenger went, the landlord entertained his guest with account of the wonderful talents of the boy, whose precocious cleverness and great conversational powers were the pride of the village. The attacks of ill-health, to which Mr. Bronte had been subject of late years, rendered it not only necessary that he should take his dinner alone, for the sake of avoiding temptations to unwholesome diet, but made it also desirable that he should pass the time directly succeeding his meals in perfect quiet. And this necessity, combined with due attention to his parochial duties, made him partially ignorant how his son employed himself out of lesson time. His own youth had been spent among people of the same conventional rank, as of those into whose companionship Renwell was now thrown— but he had had a strong will and an earnest and persevering ambition and a resoluteness of purpose which his weaker son wanted it is singular how strong a yearning the whole family had towards the art of drawing mr bronte had been very solicitous to get them good instruction the girls themselves loved everything connected with it all descriptions or engravings of great pictures and in default of good ones, they would take and analyse any print or drawing which came in their way, and find out how much thought had gone to its composition, what ideas it was intended to suggest, and what it did suggest. In the same spirit, they laboured to design imaginations of their own. They lacked the power of execution, not of conception. At one time, Charlotte had the notion of making her living as an artist, and wearied her eyes in drawing with pre raffalet minuteness, but not with pre raffalet accuracy, for she drew from fancy rather than from nature. But they all thought there could be no doubt about Branwell's talent for drawing. I have seen an oil-painting of his, done I know not when, but probably about this time, It was a group of his sisters, life-size, three-quarters lengths, not much better than sign-painting as to manipulation, but the likenesses were, I should think, admirable. I could only judge of the fidelity with which the other two were depicted, from the striking resemblance which Charlotte, upholding the great frame of canvas, and consequently standing right behind it, bore to her own representation— though it must have been ten years and more, since the portraits were taken. The picture was divided almost in the middle by a great pillar. On the side of the column which was lighted by the sun stood Charlotte in the womanly dress of that day of gigot sleeves and large collars. On the deeply shadowed side was Emily, with Anne's gentle face resting on her shoulder, Emily's countenance struck me as full of power—Charlotte's of solicitude, and's of tenderness. The two younger seemed hardly to have attained their full growth, though Emily was taller than Charlotte. They had cropped hair and a more girlish dress. I remember looking on those two sad, earnest, shadowed faces, and wondering whether I could trace the mysterious expression which is said to foretell an early death. I HAD SOME fond, SUPERSTITIOUS HOPE THAT A COLUMN DIVIDED THEIR FATES FROM HERS, WHO STOOD APART IN THE CANVAS AS IN LIFE SHE SURVIVED. I LIKED TO SEE THAT the BRIGHT SIDE OF THE PILLAR WAS TOWARDS HER, THAT A LIGHT IN THE PICTURE FELL ON HER. I MIGHT MORE TRULY HAVE SOUGHT IN A PRESENTMENT, NAY, IN HER LIVING FACE, FOR THE SIGN OF DEATH IN HER PRIME they were good likenesses, however badly executed. From thence I should guess his family augured truly that, if Branwell had but the opportunity, and alas had but the moral qualities, he might turn out a great painter. The best way of preparing him to become so appeared to be to send him as a pupil to the Royal Academy. I dare say he longed and yearned to follow this path, principally because it would lead him to that mysterious London, that Babylon the Great, which seems to have filled the imaginations, and haunted the minds of all the younger members of this recluse family. To Branwell it was more than a vivid imagination, it was an impressed reality. By dint of studying maps, he was as well acquainted with it, even down to its byways, as if he had lived there poor misguided fellow, this craving to see and know London, and that stronger craving after fame, were never to be satisfied. He was to die, at the end of a short and blighted life. But in this year of 1835, all his home kindred were thinking how they could best forward his views, and how help him up to the pinnacle, where he desired to be. What their plans were, let Charlotte explain." These are not the first sisters, who have laid their lives as a sacrifice before their brother's idolized wish. Would to God they might be the last who met with such a miserable return! Howarth, July sixth, 1835 I had hoped to have had the extreme pleasure of seeing you at Howarth this summer, but human affairs are mutable and human resolutions must bend to the cause of events. We are all about to divide, break up, separate. Emily is going to school, Branwell is going to London, and I am going to be a governess. This last determination I formed myself, knowing that I should have to take the step some time, and better sooner signer, to use a Scotch proverb. And knowing well that papa would have enough to do with his limited income should Branwell be placed at the Royal Academy and Emily at Roe Head. Where am I going to reside, you will ask? Within four miles of you, at a place neither of us is unacquainted with, being no other than the identical Roe Head mentioned above. Yes, I am going to teach in the very school where I was myself taught. Miss W. made me the offer, and I preferred it to one or two proposals of private governorship, which I had before received. I am sad, very sad at the thoughts, of leaving home, But duty, necessity. These are stern mistresses, who will not be disobeyed. Did I not once say you ought to be thankful for your independence? I felt what I said at the time— and I repeat it now with double earnestness. If anything would cheer me, it is the idea of being so near you. Surely you and Polly will come and see me. It would be wrong in me to doubt it. You were never unkind yet. Emily and I leave home on the twenty-seventh of this month. The idea of being together consoles us both somewhat. And truth, since I must enter a situation— My lines have fallen in pleasant places. I both love and respect Miss W. End of section 9